Kim Jong Corleone today, Thursday, April 4th. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. The threats keep coming from North Korea's Kim Jong-un. This former U.S. diplomat has heard the rhetoric before. It's a tried and true technique of the North Koreans to basically run an extortion racket internationally to try to threaten people and scare people into giving them goods, goodies and money. The strategy isn't working on South Korea, though. Most South Koreans are completely apathetic toward what the North says. People just shrug their shoulders. Also, the first woman to run for parliament in Pakistan's tribal areas and the global business of ripping off magic tricks. It's The World from Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Another day, another provocative act by North Korea. Today, the North reportedly moved a missile of considerable range to its eastern coast. The move could be in preparation for a military attack on U.S. or South Korean targets in the region, though observers still think that's unlikely. Meanwhile, for a second day in a row, North Korea kept South Koreans from entering the Kaesong Industrial Complex. That's where North and South Korea jointly operate more than 100 factories. But North Korea has been threatening to shut them down. This morning, reporter Jason Struther headed for the complex, which is located just north of the demilitarized zone, the DMZ. I was at the entry point to the Kaesong Industrial Complex. So I was still on the South Korean side, just on the southern edge of the DMZ. Uh, big gate that all these tractor trailers queue up in front of, waiting for the, the entry permit to get into North Korea, driving through the DMZ and then to the industrial complex. There are you know close to a thousand South Koreans that work in the industrial complex on a daily basis. Right. So a thousand South Koreans. How many North Koreans work there? About 40,000. There's 123 South Korean factories and they employ all these North Koreans as, well, more or less cheap labor. What are they making there? They make a lot of low-end goods. I mean, today, when I was walking around talking with some of the drivers who were waiting and hoping to get across the border, I met one man who uh, was bringing parts for a toy factory, another guy whose big blue tractor trailer was filled with shoes, he told me. And then there was another uh, man who was uh, driving a, a truck filled with supplies for women's undergarments. Bit of everything. Well, this factory has kind of emerged as a component in the saber rattling from uh, North Korea, and that's part of the news today. First, let me ask you about one thing. How real is this threat that the plant will close on April 10th? I know it's just rumors at this point, but what are you hearing? I met the factory owner who uh, stated that he had received a letter from the North Korean government. He's a member of an executive council of factory owners in Kaesong that said all South Koreans must clear out by April 10th. Well, as soon as that hit the news, 
the South's unification ministry, the government body that handles relations with the North, said, oh, no, no, no. He misread it. North was asking for a, a kind of a time-in, time-out sheet based on you know the, the movements of South Korean workers across the border. But later on, the unification ministry seems to have backed down. So it's it's really unclear right now what that is. North Korea hasn't addressed that issue, but it did release a statement in its own media on Thursday threatening that Pyongyang would pull its 40,000 workers out of the Kaesong complex, which would seem counterintuitive. The factories produce about $2 billion worth of goods each year, so it, it seems like they'd be shooting themselves in the foot if they do, in fact, cripple the factories by removing all their employees. Also in uh, North Korean saber-rattling news today, Jason, uh, I know it's hard to uh, assess the military hardware threats coming from Pyongyang, but uh, what kind of missile did North Korea actually move to their eastern coast today? Well, South Korea's defense minister says that it's not a long-range missile. It's something similar to a medium range, and it's not pointed at the United States. It's unclear if it actually has a warhead on it. Defense Minister Kim believes that it could be used in an upcoming military exercise or perhaps just some sort of demonstration of strength. But if it were, in fact, a medium-range missile, those could have a range of up to about 4,000 kilometers which would, of course, not 2,500 miles. It wouldn't put the U.S. mainland in range, but it would definitely put bases in Japan and perhaps Guam in range. Well, it's all kind of anxiety provoking. How are South Koreans reacting to all this? Uh, You know, Marco, it's one of the things that I still find surprising living here in South Korea is that most South Koreans are completely apathetic toward what the North says. I, I think after six decades of hearing rhetoric and hearing often much worse threats and, and seeing real consequences, you know, naval skirmishes, islands being bombed, airplanes being blown up, clashes in the streets of Seoul back in the 1960s, North Korea saying these days, you know, that we're going to turn Seoul into a sea of fire. I think people just shrug their shoulders. Anxiety inoculation, I guess, over six decades. Mm. Correspondent Jason Struther in Seoul, thank you. Thank you very much, Marco. Former diplomat Jeffrey Bader worked on North Korea policy for the Obama administration from 2009 to 2011. Now he's a fellow at the Brookings Institution. I asked him if he thought a North Korean attack was imminent. If what we're talking about is the kind of massive attack, uh, frontal assault on the U.S. homeland or U.S. facilities, overseas of the kind that Kim Jong-un has been talking about, no. The White House made clear the other day in a press statement there's been no particular changes in North Korean deployments indicating movement in that direction. On the other hand, an asymmetric provocation of the sort they have done in the past, such as when they shelled Yongpyong Island near the maritime demarcation line in 2010, or they sank the South Korean naval vessel, the Chonan, that same year. That kind of activity one cannot rule out. And yet we've seen this incredible level of rhetoric in in recent days and weeks. This is big stuff. The vocabulary and the rhetoric are at a new level of hysteria. Uh, The question is what we make of that. I don't think that it connotes intentions on their part to do something rash and self-destructive. I think it mostly means that Kim Jong-un is trying to establish his credibility with other leaders in North Korea, with the North Korean military, that they are trying to rally the population in a 1984-type fashion that they've done for years and now Mm -hmm. they're doing with a new leader. 
And it's a tried and true technique of the North Koreans to basically run an extortion racket internationally to try to threaten people and scare people into giving them goods, goodies and money. I think once the exercises, the U.S. and South Korean exercises are finished, we'll probably see the North Koreans lower the temperature a bit and maybe send out some signals that we should be talking again and South Korea, Japan and the U.S. should provide them the benefits that they're seeking. So kind of this very sophisticated extortion racket. I mean, how much of it is for just North Korean domestic consumption? You know, lines like Seoul will be bathed in a sea of fire and the moment of explosion is fast approaching, that kind of stuff. Clearly, a lot of it is for domestic purposes. This is a new leader at 29 years old in a uh, a leadership of lots of people who don't have much use for a 29-year-old leader, frankly. These people in their 60s think that they run Korea, and they have a lot of experience with the Kim Il-sung period and the Kim Jong-il period. And Kim Jong-un has to establish his credentials with this group. And also, it's clearly an effort to create kind of a martial spirit and hysteria among the population about the threats that they face so that the deprivations that North Koreans endure uh, will seem tolerable, not the work of the North Korean failed policies, but a conspiracy of outside powers to uh, to oppress them. Jeffrey Bader, put us in the shoes of the North Koreans. Do they believe they're the victim here? And if so, the victim of whom? Their 29-year-old leader or international external forces? If we're talking about the North Korean elite leadership, I mean, this is a group that basically doesn't care about their population, except insofar as their population at some point could pose a risk through instability. But short of that, uh, economic development has never been a serious priority of the North Korean leadership. They welcome these high states of agitation, these high states of tension. In their view, they serve to reinforce their domestic uh, position and they also help their extortion racket internationally. So do they see themselves as the victim? Yeah, of course they do. Presumably they have hypnotized themselves into believing that. And, and North Korean citizens? What do they think? North Korean citizens, the propaganda mechanisms in North Korea are pretty strong. So I, I would assume that that narrative is uh, widely believed but without enthusiasm. And I think it's probably pretty thin. I think if there were a different policy – look, North Korea – could change its policy, uh, turn on a dime and move towards a policy of reconciliation and they would not face resistance from the population, which would be delighted. Unfortunately, that's not likely to happen. Jeffrey Bader, fellow at the Brookings Institution. His most recent book is called Obama and China's Rise, an insider's account of America's Asia strategy. Jeffrey, thanks a lot. Thanks so much, Marco. The tensions over North Korea, serious as they are, have also inspired a lot of cartoons. And the world's cartoon editor, Carol Hills, is here to tell us about them. Carol, are the cartoonists joking around with nukes, or is there another theme you're seeing right now in North Korea? Well, they started out joking about nukes and portraying Kim Jong-un as a sort of petulant little boy, not minding his manners. Um, as the days have worn on and the threats continue, the cartoons are getting a little bit more serious. And the new theme is that North Korea and Kim Jong-un used to be a dutiful little boy to China, and now he's not. So you see a baby or a toddler with a pacifier, but the pacifier has popped out of the mouth. He's wailing. He's banging a drum, you know, with, with nuclear symbols. And the adult next to him is China wearing a T-shirt that says, I'm not with stupid. <laughs> 
there's a lot of kind of stuff like that. I mean, in another one, there's um, an adult. It's China. He's picking up Kim Jong-un, North Korea. He's throwing out his pacifier again, and his diaper is full, and the fumes coming out of it are nuclear symbols. Of course they are. Where are these cartoons coming from for the most part? You know, they're coming from everywhere. At first, it was usual suspects, a few from Europe, some from East Asia, but it's everywhere now. Every A ton out of Latin America, a ton out of Canada, Australia, East Asia, Middle East, everywhere now. The whole world's watching it. The World's Carol Hills, our cartoon editor, and you can see lots of cartoons about North Korea at our Tumblr page. Follow us at pritheworld.tumblr.com. Carol, thank you. Thanks, Marco. Who knows what Kim Jong-un's salary is, or if he even has one. I was wondering, after I heard the White House announcement yesterday about President Obama returning 5% of his salary, he's doing it in solidarity with workers who will be furloughed because of the sequester. Remember the sequester? Anyway, Obama makes $400,000 a year, and that's been the going rate since 2001. The salary had been 200000 a year, but doubled when George W. Bush became president. So that got me thinking about what other heads of state make. We've got a few links at theworld.org that will give you a good overview, but the headlines are interesting. If you want to be a leader just to rake it in, then do it in Singapore. The head of government there, Lee Hsien Lung, makes $2.2 million a year. Now, that might seem like a lot, but you have to kind of compare it to the average salary of the rest of his countrymen. And then it's still a lot and puts Lee at number two in the world. In that regard, the head of state with the biggest salary would be Uhuru Kenyatta. Not only is he the richest man in Kenya, full stop, as newly elected president of the country, Kenyatta is now entitled to a salary of more than 425000 a year. That is 240 times more than what the average Kenyan makes annually. Using that gauge, Obama earns about eight times what the average American makes. And the most modest head of state salary in the world, at just over $4,000 a year, India's Prime Minister Manmohan Singh earns just around twice the GDP of his countrymen. Way to keep it real, Mr. Prime Minister. Still to come on the world, a groundbreaking parliamentary candidate from Pakistan's tribal areas. It's a woman. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and health care information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. The dust is still settling in Kenya from last month's contested presidential election. Last weekend, the country's Supreme Court upheld the controversial victory of Uhuru Kenyatta, and today that result got a qualified endorsement from Jimmy Carter's election observer group. The Carter Center says the March election's paper trail preserved the will of Kenyan voters despite serious shortcomings. But political tensions are far from the East African nation's only challenge. Among other things, climate change is also starting to take its toll, especially on Kenya's traditional cultures, like the Maasai, whose homeland spans much of Kenya and neighboring Tanzania. Maasai traditions have withstood many challenges over the years. But as Fawn Kaim reports, many are finding climate change to be the last straw. The sky over the Southern Rift Valley is pink, turning to red, and purple, as 77-year-old Takiata Karenke brings 50 head of cattle home for the night. Cattle are the staple of the Maasai diet and their culture. 
A cow offers us meat, milk, and blood, Takiata says. We treasure cows so much, we don't take care of anything as well as we take care of our cattle. For Maasai men, cows equal wealth and prestige. And despite the tranquility of this evening, Karyanke is upset because half of his cattle are stuck on the other side of a flooded river, over 40 miles away from his watchful eye. We didn't expect the rain at this month. That's Takiata's nephew, Johanna Karyanke, a 21-year-old marathon runner. But we had a lot of rain, so much, and the, the rivers were flooded, and uh, the, the cows just were stuck there. This is supposed to be the dry season, so the weather has Takiata confused. February normally has no rain, Takiata says. In April, we start hoping for rain. Now you see everything has changed. Not that Takiata is complaining. This region is increasingly drought-prone, so rain anytime is welcome. But to go from drought to drowning doesn't really help. The weekly cattle market is the cornerstone of the Maasai economy, and sales here depend on the kind of steady rains that once were the norm in Kenya. These days, Takiata sells less cattle here because there haven't been steady rains for at least a decade. There is a big change, Takiata says. Droughts didn't used to kill a lot of cattle. But Takiata has lost over 50% of his cattle to drought since early 2000s. Losses like that have a big impact on Maasai families and their culture. For members of the younger generation, like Takiata's nephew Johanna, it's more and more challenging to be a pastoralist. You know now droughts are coming and climate change, so a lot of cows are dying. So it's making them to, to look for the other options. Johanna himself is just home visiting for the weekend. And of course, in his new line of work as a runner, it's impossible for him to wear the colorful, traditional Maasai attire called the shuka. Johanna says his brothers and sisters have also become very westernized. I have worried that the Maasai culture is really going down. Johanna's worry about the decline in the Maasai culture is validated on new farms like the one owned by Noah Ole Nyotiek. The first obvious sign of change is Nochiek's chickens, which the Maasai used to dislike almost as much as farming. Nochiek was a pastoralist like Takiata Karyanke until a few years ago. Two or four, two or five. That's the time we lost a lot of our cows, and that's why I decided now to be in a small farm, to put a garden and see what is coming in. Like Karyanke, Nochiek too lost over half of his cattle. It was hard that time. I didn't get money to pay my, for my children, school fees, and I didn't get a lot of uh, food in my house. So instead of driving cattle across a vast range in search of grass that often didn't exist, Notiek settled onto a small plot of land. He got help with the transition to farming from an NGO-funded community center where he learned how to dig a well, rotate crops, and install modern, efficient irrigation technology to better weather the droughts. When you want to save your water, you use the drip irrigation system. Notiek wears Western clothes, watches TV on his couch, and drives a car instead of cattle. And as elsewhere in the region, here in Insignia, many authentic Maasai traditions like music, dance, and the colorful shukas are increasingly reserved for ceremonies and tourists. Of course, climate change is not the only threat to Maasai culture, but it is the one that frightens them the most. 
As for Takyata Karinke, at 77, he continues to endure the increasing hardships. Out at the spot where his cattle are stuck, the river is still too large for his cattle to cross. Takyata prevails upon his friends, who have been watching his cattle, to continue the favor for a few more days. It's peaceful out here, in a place where some Maasai children are still being taught to call and herd cattle. And it's ironic that Takyata originally drove his cattle all the way out here due to lack of rain back home. Now, too much rain has prevented them from returning. But of the two evils, Takyata is far more fearful of drought. I see in the future big problems with more droughts, like the ones we've already been experiencing, Takyata says. Climate modelers back up his fears. They say the Maasai can expect more drought, but also more floods as the future brings more extreme weather to East Africa. Given all of the headaches, I asked Takyata if he'd consider farming. I'd consider whatever is best for the children, he says. A practical but unenthusiastic answer. Like most Maasai, Takyata is stoic amid his difficulties. He doesn't say it, but it's clear that the loss of his cattle and this way of life would be tremendously painful. But his nephew Johanna holds a hope for the future. As a marathon runner, he has a dream to preserve the family's pastoralist traditions. I can run, and um, when I win, maybe one marathon, I can buy a lot of cows. For The World, I'm Fawn Kaim, Narok, Kenya. Fawn's story was reported in collaboration with The Daily Climate. We've got a video of Takiata Karienke's family that'll give you a very clear picture of the kind of life they lead. That's at theworld.org. There are 48 landlocked countries scattered around the world. Here are a few landlocked facts to help us jumpstart today's geoquiz. Switzerland, Zimbabwe, and Armenia. None has access to the world's oceans. And Uzbekistan is a cool case. It's entirely surrounded by other landlocked countries. There are no landlocked nations in North America, but South America has a couple, and those are the two countries we want you to name. One's in the news this week. This landlocked country lost its coastal territory as a result of a treaty it signed at the end of the 19th century War of the Pacific. That lack of access to the sea remains a sore issue there, but now the country's government is suing neighboring Chile to get its coastline back. And this week, it appointed an ambassador to take its case before the International Court of Justice in The Hague. We'll hear more about that when we come back with the answers later in the program. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead on the world, the first woman to run for parliament in Pakistan's conservative tribal areas. And later, protecting intellectual property grows harder in the digital age, especially for magicians. Before I had seen Magic Axe copy little bits or a trick here or a trick there, but this was the whole enchilada. 
PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. The humanitarian situation in Syria is bad and getting worse. The Red Cross says conditions for civilians inside the country are worsening rapidly as the conflict between rebels and the government of Bashar al-Assad drags on. Millions of Syrians have fled their homes. Many are leaving the country as refugees. The European aid group Handicap International is increasing its operations across the Syrian border in northern Jordan to address this growing humanitarian crisis. The BBC's Caroline Hawley has had exclusive access to one of the mobile aid teams in the Jordanian city of Erbid to where refugees have fled the fighting. Caroline joins us now. You met people who have been disabled in the civil war. Tell us the story of the woman you met named Lubna. We met a 24-year-old woman who was bedridden. Now, she was a student at Damascus University. She had been newly married, and she'd been going down from Damascus to the southern town of Dera. She was in a minibus. The minibus was raked with gunfire. All the passengers were killed. She lay bleeding in that minibus for three hours. She said it was absolutely terrifying that she was screaming out, help me, help me, and that people did try to come to rescue her and anyone else who might be in the minibus who needed rescuing. But she said they were being shot at and and she knows that two people who came to try to rescue her were killed. She said at that moment she really thought she was going to die. She wrote a text message to her sister, Wiam, saying, I'm dying, please forgive me. Eventually, she was rescued. She was taken to one hospital. Apparently, all the doctors there had fled. We know that many doctors, because they've been targeted, have left the country. But eventually, she was brought out of Syria to Jordan. At this point, she had been shot in the back. She's basically paralyzed and she's bedridden. Extraordinary that she's even alive, given what happened to everybody in that bus. Uh, And one wonders what might have happened if she hadn't been evacuated out of the country. What kind of help is available for the disabled inside Syria right now? I think the situation inside Syria as regards medical care is extremely grim. We know from the charity Médecins Sans Frontières that they say that the health system has essentially collapsed. And certainly people we spoke to from Handicap International were saying that if those injured Syrians that we met, if they had been able to get the care they needed in Syria at the right time, fewer of them would face permanent disability. And for example, one other person we met um, there, we met him doing rehab. He was a six-year-old boy called Muhammad. He'd had 12 operations because he'd had all his limbs fractured and the top of his head taken off during a rocket attack, which uh, took place again in the town of Dera when he was eating his dinner. His mother told me that she had taken him to the government hospital, but then the hospital had been surrounded by the military. She was very, very scared that they might raid it and that something might happen to him. And so she arranged again for him to be taken out and to be carried across the border to Jordan. And the numbers are staggering, Marco. The World Health Organization is talking about 350,000 injured. Now, women who are injured in the conflict face special challenges. You met a man named Hatim Masada, who makes artificial limbs. He told you about what the women deal with. 
That's right. He was a man who's been in working on prosthetics, fitting prosthetics for some 25 years. So he's a renowned expert in his field. And he was treating a little girl who he met called Isra, who's nine years old, who was uh, sitting under a tree when she was hit by a sniper's bullet. It fractured her spine. He was measuring her up for calipers because she'll probably never walk normally again. But I, I asked him how important it was to get Isra back on her feet and back walking. And he said it was particularly important for girls and women because for them, disability can be seen in the region as a shame. The society here in Jordan and in the Arab world in general, it's difficult for a woman to be disabled. It's uh, some kind of shame. If a family has a disabled female, nobody will marry from them. Yeah, as he says, no one's going to marry a disabled woman. There is a major stigma attached to disability, particularly for women. And Lubna, who was an amazing young woman, incredibly bright-eyed, really hospitable, um, smiling a lot despite her injuries. I mean, really a wonderful woman. She had to flee to Jordan for treatment, and within a month, her husband had divorced her. The BBC's Caroline Hawley, thank you for your time. You're welcome. That last story we heard from Caroline highlights how women around the globe often face more obstacles and challenges than men simply because they are women. And that's definitely the case in Pakistan. That country is ranked as one of the worst countries to be a woman by the World Economic Forum. Many Pakistani women find it difficult to access education and find work in their conservative society. And one of the most conservative parts of Pakistan is a region known as the tribal areas. They're predominantly Pashtun areas along the northwest frontier with Afghanistan. A woman from there made history this week. Badam Zari became the first woman from the tribal areas to run for a seat in parliament. The BBC's Ramanullah traveled into the mountains to meet her this week and is now back in Peshawar. Badam Zari, when we talked to her, she said that, in fact, she wants to do something for the women in that area because that is a backward area and she wants to do something for the women education and also for the women development and she was also a little bit frustrated, despaired of the men folk that they have done nothing for the area. And therefore she has come forward. This is what she told me. These men are our brothers and we are all human beings. Women should also come forward. So this idea came to my mind. I will serve my people. My tribe is fully supporting me. They are calling me, offering to help, and they tell me not to lose heart. Ramanula, when Badam Zari is talking about women's education and doing things for women's development, specifically, what does she want to do? Frankly speaking, she is not having that much visible, or pronounced, or clear plan. But her words show that she wants to do something. She told us that the women are working in the fields with their husbands, but still, they have not been given those rights that they deserve. And therefore, she wants to fight for the rights of the women. This is such a conservative part of Pakistan. Uh, the Pakistani Taliban aren't even that far away. Is there any concern about a violent backlash uh, against her candidacy? Is she worried? This was my question that I asked her that even Taliban have issued, have given threats to male politicians and even they are afraid when they are conducting rallies or when they are doing meetings. This is what she told me. I haven't thought about security so far. My intentions are positive. 
I don't have any fear in my heart. She is living in a protected area, a, a well-guarded area, and that may be the reason that she is not having that fear in her heart. So far, Taliban has said nothing about her, but perhaps when she gets popularity, as when Malala Yousafzai swat, when she was writing the, writing the diary, and when she was talking to the media, firstly, in the start, in the beginning, Taliban ignored her. But when she got that much popularity, then she was targeted. Well, Malala Yousafzai, you referred to there, that's a Pakistani girl uh, advocate, shot in the head for her campaign for girls' education. Uh, um, can this unprecedented woman candidate from this predominantly Pashtun area, uh, can she win? I think that there are little chance that she could win the election, but she has opened a gateway for other women that if an uneducated woman can come forward, why not the educated women should come forward and they should fight for their rights? So if she is defeated, I think that this will be a victory for the women folk because she crossed those barriers. She, in fact, broke those barriers that male-dominated society has made for the women that they should not go outside their homes. Either way, win or lose, it's historic. Ramanula, tell me what she was like as a person. You sat down with her, you met her for the first time. Tell us about her. She's quite a simple lady. When we spoke to her even, she could not speak Pashto very fluently, frankly speaking, and she's quite simple and she covered her body fully. And when we first met her, she was a little bit nervous. She was telling all the time that because you are quite aware of this tribal area that women are not allowed to speak to the strangers. And I'm telling you the, another truth, and this is that even women can't speak very friendly to their own family members in the tribal areas. Why and is that? Obviously, because there's a gap in the male and the women. And when she was speaking to us, we were strangers for her. And obviously, uh, she was uh, nervous. And to our questions, she was responding. Her answer was quite short. The BBC's Ramanula in Peshawar, Pakistan. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much. There are 12 sovereign nations in South America, but only two of them are landlocked. They are Bolivia and Paraguay. Those are the answers to our GeoQuiz today. Now, Bolivia is hoping to regain the Pacific coastline it once had through a lawsuit. The Bolivian government is planning to sue neighboring Chile before the International Court of Justice. Veronica Smink with BBC Mundo has been looking at this longstanding sea access dispute. So, Veronica, this actually takes us back to a geo-quiz we had last week on the program involving the War of the Pacific in the 19th century. Bolivia had a route to the sea prior to that war and a bit of coastline, but lost it to Chile at the end of the war. That's the thumbnail of the story. So give us the rest of the history. Yes, that's right. Bolivia actually had 250 miles of coast before that war, um, but they also lost a, a massive amount of land. And since then, they've been claiming, you know, especially the access to the Pacific Ocean. They say that this has put them back economically very strongly. And, and this is a demand that uh, current president Evo Morales has been, you know, it has been the main focal point or one of the main focal points of his policy. But Bolivia signed a treaty to end the War of the Pacific back in the 19th century, a treaty that gave Chile this territory. Does that make any court ruling in Bolivia's favor unlikely after all these years? Well, this is what Chile has been saying all these years. You know, they say this was a treaty that Bolivia signed and agreed to. And they also say that, the, the, generally speaking, when these treaties are signed, that's the end of the matter. But Bolivia says that it's not a legitimate 
treaty. They say that they signed as a as a country that had just been conquered and that uh, they don't consider it legitimate. And uh, actually, in that sense, it's interesting that the International Court of Justice has had a, a recent ruling at the end of 2012 regarding another treaty that had been signed and they did consider it um, illegitimate. So there is a, a claim to be had, but it will be actually the International Court of Justice that has to decide if they even accept the claim. I mean, Chile, as you point out, has a really long coastline. Has there been any talk of just creating a carter to the sea through Chilean territory? I mean, be a kind of simple solution. There have been a lot of talks during the years, but there's never been any agreement. And for Bolivia, this is a, a matter of, of patriotism as well. They, they want sovereign rights to the Pacific Ocean. It's not just a matter of economics here. You know, they, they want to own a piece of land again, and Chile has always said no to that. Sounds like it could be a long, protracted legal battle between Chile and Bolivia. Are there stretches where a corridor might actually work? Well, what Bolivia says is that the problem with that is that they are about 2,000, you know, the closest Bolivian city to the coast is about 2,000 kilometers long, and they don't actually have the infrastructure. What city is that? This is Oruro in Mm. Bolivia. What they say is that part of the problem is that because Bolivia lost its coast so many years ago, they never had um, any infrastructure made to carry, you know, the main export they're interested in in exporting is gas. You know, Bolivia is the main exporter from South America of gas. And economically speaking, what they would like to do is be able to take this gas, especially to the Asian markets. But currently they don't have any infrastructure to do that. And of course, they would have to cross the Andean mountains, so no short feet. Uh, so mountains there. I mean, this area between Bolivia and Chile, it's a short little distance. It looks like to be about 150 to 200 miles tops. I see a little city called Arica on the Chilean side. What, what is this area like? That's right. Actually, Bolivia currently uses Arica, the port of the Chilean port of Arica. It's an economic free zone. So in that sense, Chile has always said, you know, we, we do allow you to use um, this port for your exports. The problem, according to the Bolivians, is that they have to pay for storage, for instance. It's a private company that manages the port. So they have to pay all this money to get through another country. So they're saying this is not enough. BBC Mundo's Veronica Smink, thanks for talking to us. My pleasure. We're going to take a brief look at another coast now, the coast of Somalia. It's known as a haven for pirates, and journalists have gone to great lengths to get those pirates to tell their stories. So this is where a group of enterprising Kenyans comes in. They've made themselves a small fortune pretending to be Somali pirates. A man named Adnan told a British TV channel that he could make up to 200 bucks a day acting like a desperate Somali driven to piracy and that the scheme involved a fixer who would drive Western reporters around a suburb of Nairobi looking for elusive pirates among the local Somali community. The boys came to us and tell us, you know, the guys, the white men have come, they need the pirates, you know. So he say, assume to be a pirate. So we act, that is the way we act. Interviews with these fake pirates apparently made it into the venerable pages of Time magazine and have been broadcast in documentaries, one of which was reportedly shown in some 18 countries across the world. One Czech filmmaker who was duped says he's now making another documentary about Kenyans tricking journalists. You're listening to The World on The Real PRI. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World Magicians, they've stolen each other's secrets for as long as the art of magic has existed. But these days, the interconnectivity of everything makes it even easier to rip off tricks. And magicians here can't rely on the law to protect them. The world's Arun Roth dropped in on some magicians in Las Vegas who say their best work is getting pirated by Chinese websites. Having toured all over Europe and Japan, 
a FISM Award winner in Yokohama, and considered a master of the art of levitation, direct from Germany, Losander. Losander, as you've just heard, is the master of levitation. In the most famous part of his act, a table floats impossibly, darting around as if possessed. It's not just his signature illusion, it's his magical legacy. Losander sells his floating tables to magicians around the world, and they can cost thousands of dollars. At least that was until a knockoff started appearing on Chinese websites. At the beginning, of course, when these copies kind of popped up like mushrooms, I was like very upset. They they even sell it cheaper than I can buy the materials, you know. <laughs> it's like the, you can buy a floating table for like $30, I think. Losander says the cheap copies don't work, but the websites would have you believe you're buying the original product. In fact, one of them displays pictures of Losander's own tables. It even embeds Losander's promotional video. Hi, my name is Losander. My new table, Trinity, was created with two goals in mind. The website, 52magic.com, isn't put off by the fact that the video has a text disclaimer warning about copies sold by sites like 52magic.com. And now, enjoy the Trinity table. It's a sad situation. It's like a cancer in our business. Kevin James is another magician, world famous for his innovations. He's been nicknamed the inventor. And some of his best inventions are popping up on counterfeit sites. For instance, his snow animator, a device that produces a snowstorm of confetti from the magician's hands. James says the problem is compounded by online retailers outside of China. What they'll do is this bad dealer in France will take all the photos and text off of the China guy's website, okay, translate it to French. So now if you're a young magician in France, you go to this guy's magic website, and you say, oh, it's Kevin James Snow Animator, right? And then the, the text says something very ambiguous like, uh, well, when Kevin performs this, he gets a great reaction. Big media corporations have staked out some strong protection for intellectual property. But for the individual magician, protecting ideas is tricky. There's a lot of legal ambiguity, according to Sarah Crasson, an intellectual property lawyer and magician herself. If someone can watch the performance and figure out what the secret is, then that magician would lose trade secret protection. For magicians, trade secrets are a lot tougher to keep because magicians frequently do know how other magicians do their work. It's a much more complicated thing for magicians to, to do. Okay, forget about the trick. What about just patenting the device, or gimmick as it's called in the trade? Magicians rarely actually patent devices that they invent. Horace Golden is a good example of why magicians don't do it. Horace Golden performed a version of the song A Lady in Half Illusion in the 1920s, before it turned into a cliché. Golden patented the box he used, then was horrified to see the secret revealed in a series of ads for camel cigarettes, with the slogan, It's fun to be fooled, it's more fun to know. Golden sued. The court denied his claim and said that when Golden had patented the illusion, that he had abandoned the information to the public, and so couldn't claim that this was a secret or blame anybody for talking about it. Then there's the issue of enforcement. Kevin James patented a gimmick that makes it look like the performer is carrying around a squirming, amputated arm. But his patent didn't keep knockoffs from appearing on the market almost immediately. I went to an attorney, and he said, well, okay, uh, I need... Uh, you know, $30,000 just to start. 
And uh, he says, I can't do it on a contingency basis because it's not like a microchip. There's no pot of gold at the end of this rainbow. Mm -hmm. James finds it so frustrating, he's going to stop selling tricks. Your patent is only as, as good as your ability to enforce it. So now, now it comes down to ethics. So if we, can, if we can somehow educate the magicians on what is the ethical thing to do, that's probably our best bet. Sometimes that education has to happen one magician at a time. Jeff McBride is one of the most accomplished magicians in the world. His most famous routine, and you need to check out a video to really appreciate it, involves an intricate series of transformations with a variety of masks. So you can imagine McBride's astonishment when he saw a YouTube clip of a magician in Thailand performing his entire routine, move for move, even including Jeff's original music. And it is not just a duplication of one of my tricks. It's not just an exact copy of one of my routines. It's my show, my entire show. With the music, the costume, the guy cut and dyed his hair like me, and it was the, the most carbon copy sort of duplication I had ever seen. And before I had seen Magic Axe copy little bits or be influenced by my style, or a trick here or a trick there, but this was the whole enchilada. His fans were outraged, but McBride, who runs a magic school in Las Vegas, saw a teaching opportunity. With the help of Google Translate, McBride started a dialogue with a magician who goes by the name Pat Bozo. It seemed like he was doing a tribute act, like someone would do a Beatles or a Pink Floyd or a Black Sabbath, a tribute act. You know, he wanted to do it exactly like that, you know, and, and, and I could obviously see that. So I didn't want to, like, slam the guy, but what he was doing wasn't right. And, you know, he's on television doing it. McBride said Bozo felt terrible when he explained that sort of copying wasn't acceptable in the magic community. And now he knows that, well, people have issues with that. And it's time to maybe, now that he's had his experience, to move on and come up with some original magic, and I'll even help him. That's fine. That's what my job is as a teacher. McBride says Bozo took the video down. Beyond that, he's encouraged by another development from the East. In South Korea, which is experiencing a magic renaissance, professional magicians have started an awareness campaign called Do Not Copy the Magic. For The World, I'm Arun Roth, Las Vegas. There's a lot more magic at theworld.org. We've got a wild video comparison of Jeff McBride and his Thai clone, Pat Bozo, doing the same act side by side. The whole enchilada. There's also more on the history of magical thievery. Check it out. From Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. We're about to disappear, but we'll be back tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. By the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.